going to move forward just uh, as, as we continue on this theme of evangelism. Today, I want to talk to you about our part in the Great Commission. By the way, the Great Commission is the, the directive for the church to evangelize. The first word in gospel is go. Two-thirds of God is go. The Lord wants us to go. Uh, all of heaven is saying, go church. The church world's today saying, come Lord Jesus. And the church in heaven saying, go church. We're saying, come Jesus. And he's saying, go church. And uh, I, I hate to break this to you, but he's not coming until the church goes. This gospel's got to be preached into all the world for a witness before he comes back. And uh, you and I can help bring the Lord back if we'll do our part in evangelism. And I got a feeling before man gets done with what he's doing on this earth, we're all going to want the Lord to come. So let's get busy. Let's don't wait till things get so bad that we're begging uh, for God to come. Let's, let's, let's get with it and do what we're supposed to do. My text today is from the Old Testament, the Messianic prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. I'm going to give you four verses of prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus. Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. He will, do, he will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout the earth. Even distant lands beyond the sea will wait for his instructions. Wow. This, as I said, is a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus. God the Father says, I'm going to establish the kingdom of my son on this earth. And that's going to happen. The first point I want to share with you this morning is, the, is, is a fact. And the fact is that God has a plan. And this world may seem like it's all in chaos and with no direction, but, but that's not exactly true. God has a plan for this earth. He has a plan. He has a plan. And by the way, God is going to accomplish what he has planned for this earth. Let me take you to Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 17. O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your strong hand and powerful arm nothing is too hard for you. Boy, don't you like that prophecy? Jeremiah said, let me tell you something about God. There's nothing too hard for him. He can take care of things because he's God. Let me give you some more. In that same chapter, drop down to verse 27. God responds to Jeremiah by saying, I am the Lord, the God of all the peoples of the world. And he asked this question, is there anything too hard for me? And then later on, he answers the question in case we might get it wrong. He said, there's nothing too hard for me. Did you know that even God believes in God? He believes in himself. God said, I can do anything. I'm, I'm God, and he can. And he can back it up because he is God. He can do what he says that he's going to do. Now, let me tell you something. If every king on the earth, if every president, 
If every dictator, if every world leader, if every prime minister, the leader of every nation on the face of the earth, if they all came together and made a pact and said, we're going to thwart the plan of God. And if there was agreement with every leader in the world that they were going to keep God from accomplishing this, his plan, you know what God would do? God would laugh. God would say, <laughs> you don't believe it? Look at Psalms chapter 2 and I'll prove it to you. It's not a long psalm, so I'm just going to read the whole thing. Is that okay? Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. There it is. That's what God said he'd do when all these rulers and these leaders. And listen, don't get upset when, when guys like Putin that don't believe in God and, 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 and believes in communism and believes that someday they're going to take over the world or like that little crazy guy up in North Korea flexes his muscles and shoots off a missile or two and, and, and tries to defy God. Don't get upset with that. You know what God's doing when they're doing all this crazy stuff? He's like and, and uh, CBS and the NBC and ABC and, 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 and uh, Fox and all the rest of them and uh, whatever other ones they are. He, he's, God's not doing like that at all. God's sitting up there with all this stuff going on. He said, <laughs> look at man. Look at man. Thinks he can stop me from my plans. Isn't that ridiculous? Because it is. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you're my son. Today I've become your father. Only ask and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. This is what the father has promised to Jesus. You will break them with an, uh, with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he'll become angry and you'll be destroyed in the midst of all your activities. For his anger flares up in an instant. But look at this. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. How many of you are glad this morning that you're on the right side? Amen. You're on the right side. Yes. Yes. We're not sitting here this morning flexing our fists saying, come on, God, we'll show you what we can do. We got atomic power. We got hydrogen energy. We, can, we, we got the Internet. We, <laughs> no, no, no. No, we're saying, Lord, we come this morning to worship you. We're so glad that you're God, and we agree with your plan. And, God, whatever your will is, come on. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we want from God. That's why we're here worshiping him this morning. If you believe it, give him some praise. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. and, and he said, all of us that are on this side of the thing, we're just going to rejoice and praise the Lord. So the question is, who can stand against God? Job answered the question in chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. Here's what he said. Then Job replied to the Lord, 
I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You're not going to stop God's plan. It's going to be accomplished. So it brings me to my second point this morning, which is, which is this. What is God's plan? If God has a plan for this earth, and he does, then what is that plan? Can I tell you this morning that God desires for the earth to be redeemed and for justice and mercy to prevail? Let me give you scripture for it. Habakkuk 2:14. For as the waters fill the earth, the earth will be filled with the awareness of the glory of the Lord. That day is coming when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, we're aware of it this morning. We've been singing about it, rejoicing and praising God. But you don't have to go a half a block outside the front gate this morning to find people who don't have a clue about the glory of God today. But that's going to change because the earth's going to be filled with the glory of God. Let me give you another scripture, Psalms twenty-two, twenty-seven. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families and nations will bow down before him. All the nations, all the nations. North Korea is going to bow to the Lord. Russia is going to bow to the Lord. Amen. That day's coming. We use the scripture in the New Testament that says, For God's given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. We believe that because it's coming. It's God's plan. Psalm 67, 1 to 3 says, May God be merciful and bless us. May his face smile and favor us. May your ways be known throughout the earth, your saving power among people everywhere. May the nations praise you, O God. Yes, may all the nations praise you. And let me give you one more. Psalm 72 and 19. Praise his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Are you glad that day's coming? Are you glad that day's coming? It is. It's God's plan. And there's not a force on earth that can hold it back. So you might ask me, and this is my third and final point. I'm, I'm moving right through this message this morning real fast, aren't I? This is my final point. Now, it may take me longer than all the rest of them, but this is my final point. <laughs> you, you, you may ask, well, preacher, how is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? And my answer may shock you, may surprise you. But here it is. It's already happening. It's already happening. It doesn't feel like it here in America, but it's already happening. Did you know that a million Chinese every month are coming to the Lord? A million every month are being saved in China right now. Did you know that if you put all the Latin American countries together, that a million Latinos are coming to Jesus every six weeks right now? Right now. That's happening while we sit here this morning. Nearly half of Africa has heard the gospel and responded and come to Jesus. Nearly half of Africa has been one to the Lord in our lifetime, in our lifetime. Glory to God. 
Evangelical Christianity right now is growing at a rate faster than the, uh, than the population growth. In fact, four times faster right now. Evangelical Christianity is growing at a rapid pace. 200,000 people every day are coming to Jesus somewhere in this world. Folks, we're living in the greatest day there's ever been in the history of the world. The gospel is spreading across the world. 200,000 people a day are being saved. 3,500 churches are being planted every week. And you're involved in that in a great way. We're, we're planting churches on five continents every, every week of the world. We're planting new churches and planting new churches and planting new churches. Just this week, a man stopped by my office and gave me a check for $4,500 and said, Here, plant some more churches in Africa. I said, Thank the Lord. I'm ready to go. Ready to go. Ready to go. In fact, that there, there's such an awakening and such a revival all over the world that that it's making us almost ashamed in America at how asleep the church has been for so long. Did you know that right now third world countries are sending missionaries to America at a rate five times greater than America is sending missionaries to the world? That's never happened before in the history of our nation. Brother Tony, come up here and help me, if you will, please. I, 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 want, I want Pastor Tony to share something with you. You know, our young folks just got back from a missions trip out in Los Angeles, California, uh, where, they were, um, where they were ministering at the Dream Center. But they had a little opportunity, or opportunity for some time to do some visiting. They visited the Azusa Street and some other places where uh, Pentecost uh, experience was poured out on that side, the west coast of the country. Um, along about the same time that it was being poured out on the East Coast and it met in the middle and, and it was happening all over the world in Australia and Australia, uh, Argentina and other places on the earth about the turn of the previous century there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit all over the world and it's grown like gangbusters and now like I told you third world countries are sending missionaries to America T tell us about the experience that you guys had in L.A. Good morning, church. All right, you're still you're still out there. I see you. Um, yeah, we had an awesome time. Um, we went to the Los Angeles Dream Center this year, and and uh, we ministered with them. But uh, my wife, my wife and Christina, uh, who uh, assist the uh, youth ministry, they they did something a little bit different this year, and they they scheduled some different things for us. And one of the things that they scheduled was this prayer tour of the city. Uh, which I wasn't real sure what that was going to be like, but I think if you were to talk to any team member on that trip, you would uh, understand that the prayer tour was probably one of the greatest impacts that affected us in a, in a great way as we walked around this city. And basically what this, uh, what this woman did was, it was her job, she got paid to do this, but she would take people around uh, the city and we would go to various points in the city and we would pray for that part of the city or she would give us history on that part of the city or maybe sometimes we might sit and, and listen and close our eyes and just try to hear the voice of the Lord just listen to what he might be saying to us at, at that any given moment and uh, so uh, it was very very interesting and actually uh, for, for most of us, I think it, it kind of awakened in us like, man, God is in cities and he is doing stuff in cities and, and things like that and so we were walking 
along the sidewalk and, and we got to this one point. She's like, all right, you know, what do you guys see going on right here? What, what do you see? And, you know, we would look around and we would see like maybe some, uh, a group of homeless people or we might see, uh, you know, buses or cars or whatever it may be. And, and one, one person, I don't even remember who it was, but they noticed on this sidewalk that there was this dragon sculpture kind of like over this section of the city. Um, and it was like a dragon, like you'd see something like Oriental culture. So you can kind of get that kind of in your mind's eye. And uh, she was like, it's very interesting that you point that out. And she was like, actually, uh, it's, a, it's very much a tourist spot now. But some number of years ago, it was actually a place of the Chinese-American persecution. And most of, most of us, we don't really talk about the Chinese-American persecution. i be honest with you, I really didn't know anything about it. You know, we always hear, you know, uh, black or white tensions in the country. Or we might hear about, you know, some of the Jap- Japanese persecution that surrounded uh, Pearl Harbor. But I'd never really heard about the Chinese-American persecution. And so she was telling us about how the Chinese, at one point in American history, were in Los Angeles, were sectioned off to this portion of the city. And they're like, you do your own business there. You don't come out. You just mind your own business and you stay in this part of the city. And so she was telling us about the history of that. And I was like, wow, man, what, a, what a, an oppression those people must have felt at that time in history. And to know that that was going on in our country was just, you know, it was, it was just wild. And so we, we learned about that and we walked along and she was like, I'm going to take you to the place where the Azusa Street Revival had started. And it was kind of interesting because she, you know, we always hear about the Azusa Street Revival and the great preacher, uh, William Seymour, I believe was his name. And, but she said, you don't, what you don't understand is about the lady who actually gave the property to them to have the revival. So she was like, what kind of inheritance does she have in, he- in heaven? So it was really interesting. And so we're sitting there and all of a sudden she was like, let's just pray. Let's just, let's just talk to the Lord. Let's pray right now. And, and so we were praying and uh, it was kind of like this, this strange thing. We were praying, so we had our eyes closed. And, and when, we, when we opened our eyes, we were surrounded by at least, I don't know, probably 30 uh, Chinese people. There were 30 Chinese people. And you might say, well, that's, you know, whatever. You know, one in eight people in the world is Chinese, right? No, this was a lot different because these people were from the underground church in China. And they were standing surrounding us. And their sole purpose, they spent their hard-earned money to come and fly to the United States because they love the United States. They came to pray for us. And when we, when we opened our eyes, this lady said, can we just join in prayer with you? And these Chinese people, I mean, it wasn't like we didn't have to have worship music or anything. All of a sudden, it was like to the count of three, and they just started laying hands on us and praying and prophesying over us and, and crying out to God. And I just remember just this special moment. It was like wild. And it was very much a divine appointment for us because... The lady was praying with me. She was, there was a translator standing there, and she was like, the gospel reached me because of what America did. And she was like, now I want to come back and give back to America. And she was like, I'm here to pray for you. I'm here to, to pray over this country and to, and to prophesy over this country and to see great things happen again. And it was just crazy, crazy, crazy. You know, and it encouraged me, and it just... It challenges us because we're like, this person is, is persecuted that they have to have church underground. We get to have church here on a Sunday morning. And, you know, I can be so lazy as to not even want to tell somebody that Jesus loves them. And yet they're standing in front of us, uh, uh, ministering and evangelizing to us and, and being a part of God's great plan. And so it was awesome, awesome trip. And, and I appreciate you guys letting me testify this morning about that. So I hope it encourages you. Thank you. Glory to God. Amen. Amen. Are you glad the Chinese are praying for us this morning? Amen. Boy, I am too, because you're talking about millions of spirit-filled believers 
in, in the underground church in China today, and they're, they're praying for America, that God will give us revival here. And boy, do we need it. Amen? We need it. We need it. But um, the question now, I think, is uh, not will it happen, because we know that God's plan is going to come to pass, but how is it going to happen? And uh, maybe it's not even how it's going to happen that we should be asking, but rather, what is our part in what's going to happen? Let, let me share with you something very interesting about one of the books in your Bible. It's the most unusual book in all the world. And the reason it's so unusual is because it's a book of prophecy, but it's written in the past tense. I'm talking about the book of Revelations, the last book in your Bible. The book of Revelations is a book of prophecy that's written in the past tense. Now, folks, only God can write a book with accuracy that is prophetic and write it in the past tense. Only God can do that. I mean, if there's nothing else that proves the Bible's true, just read the book of Revelations. I guess we could say that the book of Revelations is, is the history of the future. The history of the future. Read it right here. Let, let, me, let me give you a little sample here. Look, look at Revelations chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Wow. John saw, that hadn't happened yet, and yet John saw it and writes about it as though it had already happened. This is the history of the future. Let me read you some more. Revelations 11 and 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The history of the future. The history of the future. Let me give you one more. Revelations 19 and 1. And after this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. That's the history of the future. Can I tell you something this morning? Somebody's going to get the job done. How do you know, preacher? Because I just read it in Revelation. Somebody gets the job done. Somebody fulfills the Great Commission. Somebody does what God called the church to do. My question is, will you and I be a part of the history of the future. Are we in there? We could be. Maybe you already are. But it's going to come to pass because John reported it as though it had already happened. This is what the Lord is going to do. Now, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations and then... The end shall come. That's what I was talking to you about a while ago. Before Jesus comes, this gospel's got to be preached into all the world. In Revelations, we discover that Jesus comes. We hear all these great multitudes shouting and rejoicing in the presence of God. So somebody got the job done. Somebody did it. 
Listen, folks, you and I are living in the greatest day. We have before us the greatest opportunity in the history of all mankind. We have an opportunity to be a part of the history of the future. We do. We have an opportunity. A few years ago, you, you might remember this. It's been, tell me how many years ago was it when you had those T-shirts printed up was 1622 on them. Anybody in here remember those t-shirts that Miss Tammy had printed up 16, four years ago, four years ago, about four years ago. Any of you have one of those t-shirts, 1622. You know what that 1622 was about? From Bel Air Road, when you turn on South Bel Air Road to come to this church, from Bel Air Road to Columbia Road, which is the road at the end of this little short road, it's only about two and a half, three miles across there, to the end of that, when I counted four years ago, there were 1,622 houses. I don't mean right on the road, but I mean I took every road off to the right and to the left, and I counted all the houses and all those subdivisions that were being built. There were 1,622 houses that are right here. These are people that ride right by our church on a daily basis going to work. If you don't believe it, come out here about 7.30 in the morning <laughs> or about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And you, you'll know what I'm talking about. Well, now, that was, that, that was just four years ago. This week, I decided to count them again because this area is growing. You know how many houses there are now in that same corridor? 2,408. 2,408 houses. If you multiply that by the average people in, in the average household in America, you will discover that we will soon, and, and they're still building. I mean, they're still building. They're still going on. It, it's continuing. We're almost to 10,000 people between Bel Air Road and Columbia Road. God placed this church here sovereignly. When you, when you drove onto this property this morning, I'm telling you, you drove in the parking lot of a miracle. Those of you that were around when we got this place, you know that we couldn't do it. We, we couldn't do it in our own strength. It was not us. It was God who gave us this place. When they were surveying it, the survey man came to me and he said, Preacher, I happen to know what you guys gave for this property. And I also happen to know what property sells for on this exchange. And I happen to know that the cheapest property on this interchange right here, Bel Air and I-20, sold for $125,000 an acre. And that was what Cracker Barrel paid across the way for their property, $125,000 an acre. And I also happen to know that you bought this for $35,000 an acre. How would you do it? And I said, sir, I don't know whether you'll understand this or not, but the only thing I can tell you, it was God. It was God. And he snapped his fingers and said, I knew it had to be something. <laughs> because he said, I also happen to know about the oil company, and I knew about this too, that tried to buy this property, and money was no problem for them. They had just sold one enterprise for $84 million, and they had just sold another enterprise for $125 million. So they could have paid whatever, the, and they tried to, to buy this. And the owners would not sell it to them. You know why? Because God sovereignly had his hand on this place for you and for me. 
So God has placed us here with the greatest opportunity. Do you realize, and I, and I thought about this as I drove by house after house after house, counting the houses, 2,408 of them. As I counted them, I, I thought about the research that says out of every 10,000 people in America, four people die every week in a population of 10,000. Do you know 10,000? That's like a little city that we have here. In fact, I just, this week in my prayer time, I have renamed from Bel Air Road to Columbia Road, I've renamed it Hopeville. This is our little town here. It's called Hopeville. So you're in Hopeville this morning. There are nearly 10,000, soon be 10,000 people here. That means that four people die every week up and down this corridor. And you say, well, preacher, this this kind of young, a lot of young folks live, younger millennials live in this area, so probably won't be that high. No, but they're connected with family members that are dying. They're just like all of us. So that means this week, four families in this corridor experienced death. And it occurred to me, I wonder if any of those four people that died this week went to hell because no one witnessed to them about Jesus. Now, on the brighter side, not only do four people die out of 10,000 every week, but, but there are more births than that every week as well. So that also means that four families in this corridor experience the joy of a new life coming into their family, maybe more because of the youth of this area. You know what the church is supposed to do? We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we're supposed to weep with those who weep. And I believe that God is calling on New Hope to focus like a laser beam on these 10,000 people that live between these two roads and do everything that we can. That's our Jerusalem. Jesus said, I want you to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We're doing pretty good on the rest of it. We're, we're, we're reaching our Judea and Samaria. That's what the bridge ministry is all about. That's what our missions program is all about, that we're planting churches on five continents. But it's our Jerusalem that we need to really focus on with prayer and, and with intense effort to get that gospel to them. And, and, and to make sure that none ride by our church and remain lost without Jesus. What an opportunity that we have. What, a, what an opportunity that we have. And do, do you know that what you and I do affects, it has a tremendous effect. You, you may say, well, preacher, I, I just, I don't know whether what I do really amounts to anything or not. I, I, I'm not called like Pastor Roger and gifted with the, uh, the gift of evangelism. You don't have to be. Your actions still have a tremendous effect on others. In fact, you have no idea the potential effect that you have on other people. How many of you remember, um, I shared this a few years ago. In fact, it was Brother Wayne Gaines over here that, that um, made me aware of it, and, and, and I researched it and shared it with the congregation one Sunday morning, the butterfly effect. Any of you remember that or have you ever heard of the butterfly effect? Anybody heard of the butterfly effect? Several of you? Several of you? I, I want to remind you of that and give you a little history 
of the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect comes out. I've got some notes here because it's hard for me to remember all, all these details. But the butterfly effect literally got its start from a doctoral thesis that was given by Edward Lorenz. Um, he presented it to the New York Society of uh, Scientists, the Academy of Scientists, rather. He shared his theory. Here, here was his theory. His theory was that a butterfly in Brazil could flap its little wings... And by the stirring of the air, that air stirs some more air, and those molecules hit other molecules and other molecules, and it continues until the flapping of the butterfly wings in Brazil could cause a tornado in Texas. That was the theory. Now, they laughed him off stage when he presented that. But it was such an interesting theory till it took legs and became an urban legend. And it was passed on to others and others and others until in the mid-90s, there was a professor of science who did an in-depth study and proved that it was not only accurate, but it was viable and it works every time with anything that is movable. That includes people. Now, it doesn't mean that the butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil causes a tornado in Texas, but it does mean that the flapping of the butterfly wings in Brazil does affect the air that touches some more air, that touches some more air, that moves some more air, that actually has the potential of reaching all the way around to the world. And, uh, and like I said, it includes all moving matter, and in fact, his research was so good until the scientist confirmed and made it a law. And it's called the law of sensitive dependence upon initial condition. That's a law of science now that came out of the butterfly theory. I want to give you a human example of what we're talking about here. Chamberlain is a human example of the butterfly experience. One man made a move nearly 150 years ago that continues to affect multitudes today around the world. By the way, your activity, what you're doing, is also affecting more lives than you have any idea. Once you set something in motion, it continues. Several years ago, and some of you may remember this, ABC used to have a a thing on the nightly news right after the nightly news it was uh, i think peter jennings who hosted it it was called the 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 man of the week anybody remember that when they used to name so they would talk about the accomplishments of somebody and, and they would feature a new man 52 of them every year they they would feature what they called the man of the week and one particular week they featured the work of norman borlaug norman borlaug they estimated that his work had affected, in fact, not just affected, but that his work had saved over 2 billion, with a B, lives on planet Earth. And it's still going on. Here's what Norman Borlo did. He found a way to hibernize corn and wheat so it would grow in arid areas, very hot areas. 
So in areas where there was absolutely no vegetation, vast deserts, they were able now to actually grow corn and wheat. And as I said, it's estimated that Dorman Borlo saved over 2 billion people. But my question is simply this. Was it really Norman Borlow who saved two billion people? Or was it maybe Henry Wallace? You see, Henry Wallace was vice president under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, I know some of you are thinking right quick. I thought Harry Truman was vice president under Roosevelt. He was. But remember that Roosevelt served four terms. And in those four terms, he had three vice presidents. And Henry Wallace was in the middle. He was the second one. Harry Truman was the last one. And it was right after that, and because of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's repeated winning the presidency, that they placed term limits on our president. We had no term limits before that. That's how he could serve four terms instead of two. And... Um, just a little side note, they should have done that with Congress as well, but they didn't. But that's, uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but you see, Henry Wallace, before he became vice president, was secretary of agriculture. And when he became vice president, he used the power of the office to create a station in Mexico whose sole purpose was to study the hibernizing of corn and wheat so that it would grow in arid deserts. And it was there that Norman Borlow was hired to lead that scientific experimentation. And remember, it was Norman Borlow who not only was man of the year, actually he won a Nobel Prize for what he did. And they said that he saved 2 billion people from starvation. And my question is, maybe it was really Henry Wallace who saved two billion people. Or was it not really George Washington Carver who saved two billion people? How many of you remember George Washington Carver from your history? Remember him? George Washington Carver is the guy that did all the research with peanuts. In fact, Today, we still use 266 things that George Washington Carver found could be used with the peanuts. He also discovered 88 things that could be used with sweet potato, could be used for productively. He was a genius. But when George Washington Carver was 19 years old and was a student at Iowa State University, he had a professor. The professor was a scientist and um, specialized in dairy science. And this professor had a little old boy, <laughs> six years old, that loved to come to school with him. And, of course, he'd get in the professor's way. So he, the professor kind of shoved him off to George Washington Carver and said, could, my, my son's just interested in all this lab work. You, could, you, could you entertain him a little bit? And George Washington Carver took an interest in that little six-year-old boy. And he started taking that little boy with him on weekend botanical excursions. And they would study plants. And the little boy got wrapped up in it. The little boy, the little six-year-old boy was Henry Wallace, who later became vice president, who commissioned the study that saved two billion lives. 
But it was George Washington Carver who instilled a love for plants and a vision for what it could do to help starving humanity. So maybe it was George Washington Carver who saved two billion lives. Or was it Moses and Susan Carver in Diamond, Missouri, farmers who lived in a slave state but didn't believe in slavery. And so they treated their help with respect and honor, loved them, which stirred up those who were trying so hard to keep slavery going in America. And there was a there was a rioting group called Quantrill's Raiders, and they would find these people like the Carvers, Moses and Susan, that were kind to people of all color and treated people equally, and they would burn them out and destroy their farms and many times just kill them. And so one night they came to Moses and Susan's farm. They burned their barn. They burned their crops. And they drug off this woman, Mary Carter, who was clinging to her little infant son who had just a few weeks earlier been born to her. They carried her away. And Moses, because Mary Washington was best friends with his wife, Susan, did everything he could do to find out where Quintrill's raiders were and try to set up a meeting with him and finally he was able to accomplish that and so he got on the last horse he had at the for at his farm it was his prized horse it was a big black beautiful horse strong and last horse he had and he went north all the way to kansas at a predetermined crossroads where he would meet some of quintrill's raiders and he met four of them and he traded that horse for a burlap bag with a little baby boy in it. And they threw that bag at Moses and he caught it. And they took his horse and rode off and Moses fell to his knees and opened that bag. And inside was little George Washington, cold and naked, almost dead. Moses Carter opened his shirt, took that naked baby and placed it next to his own skin and pulled his shirt up tight around it and put his coat over that and walked all the way from Kansas back to Diamond, Missouri and talked to that little baby all the way and said to him, son, if you'll just live, hang in there. If you'll just live, me and Miss Susan we'll take care of you. Me and Miss Susan will raise you and me and Miss Susan will educate you. And me and Miss Susan will give you our name. And that's how George Washington became George Washington Carver because he did survive and he did live and he was raised and they did educate him. They did send him off to college and he did become the genius and he was the one that inspired Wallace to, to, when he was a six-year-old boy, to take an interest in plants, who became vice president and who commissioned the study 
of, of Norman Borlaug who, who, who they said saved two billion people with his hibernizing of corn and wheat. So maybe it was Moses and Susan who saved two billion people. Or was it? <laughs> and you see where I'm going. You could go on and on and on and on and on. And I said all that to say this. Your actions create the same chain of events. Who knows when you witness to somebody, when you shared with a neighbor, when you say to a friend, when you do something for somebody else, who knows what the end result of that will be? Who knows when you respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit? I've shared this with you before. Please forgive me for repeating, but many years ago, I used to stop at a little convenience store early in the morning on my way to open the church for prayer and get a cup of coffee every morning. I got acquainted with a young man that was working there. One afternoon on my way home, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, stop and pray for that man right now. And I wheeled into the convenience store and I said, Lord, I, I may not get the opportunity. It may be f- full of people, but it wasn't. There was only one customer at this. As soon as they got paid, they walked out and, and he was all by himself. And I went up to him and I said, I don't know what you need prayer for, but I just feel in my spirit that I needed to stop and pray for you. And he just broke down and started sharing his story. He said, I've never told you this preacher, but I'm from California and said, I came here trying to finish my education. I'm working two jobs and going to school. He said, my wife left me for somebody else and took my girls. And I've been able to talk to my girls on a weekly basis until this past week. And now she's decided not to let my girls talk to me anymore. And I've been cut off from my girls and said, my, my heart's aching for my children. I don't know if I'll ever get to talk to them again. Would you pray for me? And we prayed right there. The next morning when I saw him, he said, Preacher, you're not going to believe this. My wife called me and apologized. Everything's been patched up, and I'm going to be able to talk to my girls now. Later, he came to the church and gave his heart to Jesus. And a few years later, when he finished his education, he got married. Brother, brother Pastor Mike Clare over here, he went through marriage counseling with him. And, and, and you just don't know what the the effect will be when it goes on and on and on it's the butterfly with the, the principle you 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 just need to flutter your wings when the lord speaks to you and the, amen give god praise we need to be about our father's business are we going to be part of the history of the future Or are we going to be like the church of Laodicea? God said, I wish you were cold or hot, but because you sit there lukewarm, I'm sick of you. And I'll just spew you out into the tribulation and leave you behind when I come for my bride. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of the history of the future. I I want to be sensitive to the voice of the Lord. It's not hard. It's not hard to just let your light shine. It's not hard to just love somebody else. It's not hard to just give God the glory for anything good instead of heaping it to yourself. Amen. We can do this. 
We can do this. We can do this. I've asked God to give us a million souls in church every Sunday morning on the mission field because of the giving of this congregation. And I want to compliment you for your giving in missions. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. When you get to heaven, you're going to wish you'd have given a whole lot more. You're going to realize that there's a lot of stuff you could have done without and put that money where it would count. So I want to encourage you, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. You say, preacher, you're trying to lay a guilt trip on us. No, I'm not, but if it'll work, I'll do it. <laughs> because you're going to thank me when you get to heaven. You're going to say, man, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. Man, I'm glad you put the pressure on me. Man, I'm glad you pushed me to go beyond my, I'm, I'm glad that you, oh, yes, I pray God will send the Holy Ghost and give a revival in this church of evangelism. Let's get the word to the world. Will you stand with me, please? Glory to God. Let's get the gospel to the four corners of the earth. Then Jesus can come and we can rejoice together in his presence. I want the prayer team to come quickly. Any staff members or group leaders will help us to pray. Oh, this is the most important time of the service. Please don't leave unless you just have to. We'd love for you to stay till the end. We're going to have a closing song at the end and give you an opportunity to give your tithe and offering before you leave. If you have to go, we understand. But if you can stay with us these next few minutes, Pastor Steve's going to, during this prayer time, lead us in a beautiful old hymn. We're going to worship together. We're going to give you an opportunity to pray. If you're unsaved, please come and give your heart to Jesus today. This is the greatest opportunity you'll ever have. No time like now, the present. If you're away from God, come on back home. He'll welcome you with open arms. If you're sick in body, come and let's pray, God, for your healing. And let's, if, if you've got a financial need or a relational need, your family need, whatever it may be, there may be some of you here today, maybe many of you here this morning that say, Preacher, I. I want to come this morning and just ask the Holy Spirit to direct me and help me to be sensitive to those opportunities. I want to be part of the history of the future. I want to be a part of, of sharing the gospel. I want, to, I want to do something that will set something in motion that will cause somebody else to tell somebody else to tell somebody else until it, it affects multitudes of people for the glory of God. The altar's open. God bless you as you pray.